Uh, we will begin this message here this morning on probably one of the most beloved sections in all of Scripture. Outside of probably John 3, 16, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is probably one of the most memorized verses in all of Scripture. But don't let the routine or the familiarity of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 allow you to kind of check out on the message today. It's influential and it's memorable for a reason. It unpacks the gospel for us in such a succinct statement that it shouldn't just be something that is memorable in our heads, but it should cause our hearts to tremble for the grace of God that we have received in Christ. If you want to summarize the message in just a sentence here this morning, it is this, because of God's love, because of God's love, we have been made alive, alive to God, even when we were spiritually dead. Paul teaches this truth to the church in Ephesus in three particular ways in, this, in these five verses. He presents a glorious contrast between death and life. He presents a glorious new life that has happened because of God's love in verse 5. And then he presents the glorious, secure, guaranteed future for every person who has received the grace of God. If you will stand with me, we are going to honor the reading of God's word as we read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he, God, might show immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you now desiring to receive your grace afresh, to hear from your word about your love anew. Help us, God, over the course of these next few minutes to focus in on your word as it is unpacked to us. I pray, God, that our soul would explode with an experience of your love with the refreshing wind of your spirit and grace as it overtakes our lives. And help us, O oh God, to live from this new life, this new identity that you have given us in Christ. 
We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here last week for Pastor Cassidy's message, verses 1 through 3, you saw the bad news of what life is like apart from Christ. And if you're wondering, did you assign Cassidy specifically that passage because it is so dark and depressing? Yes! (laughs) I did! I get to do that! Actually, it was because I I had a friend in town. I was going to be taking a couple days off that week so I wouldn't have as much time in sermon preparation. And it just so happened that it is one of the darkest, most depressing passages in all of Scripture. But thank you... Weird. (laughs) But thank you, Cassidy, for taking that passage uh, last week. And I I highlight it because he just did this fantastic job not of extrapolating on the text of what it doesn't say, not trying to explain it away. Well, it says this, but it really means this. No, he said what the Bible says about our condition. He unapologetically proclaimed from the words of Scripture, this is what God says about our state of being apart from Christ. No apologies. And as, you're, as we were walking through that passage last week, in my soul, I'm like, oh my goodness. This is dark. This is depressing. This is something that I do not want my life to be defined by. And the message was good because it was so bad. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 open this chapter like staring into a bottomless ocean. It's deep, it's dark, and it's absolutely hopeless. Am I going to get to the bottom of this? No, not using your own strength, you're not. And this is the way that the Bible describes humanity apart from Christ, post-Genesis 3. This is who we are outside of God's gracious intervention. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Voluntarily following the, the prince of darkness, Satan, obeying our sinful passions, doing whatever we desire to do apart from what God desires of us. We are, without Christ, a child of wrath. We don't like that word. I said, I don't want that word to be in the scriptures. But that's exactly the way Paul describes that our state of being apart from God's gracious intervention in our life, following the prince and the power and the ruler of this air, doing whatever our sinful passions desire, justly deserving of wrath. We aren't, we aren't lovable kids apart from Christ with just a few quirks. We're not uh, human beings that just have a couple idiosyncratic rough edges that just need to be sanded off. We are, outside of Christ, deserving of judgment. We are hopeless. We're dead to God, joyfully ignorant of living a life without God and fulfilling the passions as we see fit. 
This is the backdrop of our sinful state that should say to us, we are unable to save ourselves in the midst of our sinful spiritual plight. Sure, we might be able to do a few good works that can bring blessings to other people because we're made in the image of God, but apart from salvation from the outside, we do not have the power to save ourselves from an impending eternal spiritual death. We are, as Cassidy's message last week unpacked for us, we are the walking dead. Alive to sin and dead to God. But after these three scary verses, the Apostle Paul begins one of the greatest contrasts in the Bible in verse 4. After this dark backdrop of what humanity is like apart from Christ, we have these words of, but God. Every person in this room is deserving of spiritual death apart from Christ. Living in existence from God, we are deserving of going into an eternity without God forever. But God. If we had the power in this room to, to see into the soul of every single person with every single trespass that this room has ever committed, the amount of data that would fill up that server would be more than Google even could imagine to fill on their servers. But God. If even the best person in this room the one who's done the most good deeds among us, the, the one who has given the most of their money to charity, the, the person who has gone to the most unlovable person and sacrificed for them and loved them, even the, the best parent imaginable among us. And they did every action that they possibly could to overcome their spiritual darkened hearts if we were able to see through the lens of the real motivations for all of our actions, apart from God's gracious initiative, we would see no glimmer of light whatsoever. Their life, even the best person in this room, with all of their good works, would be utterly, completely consumed by darkness. But God, the great contrast that is presented for us in verse 4 is not rooted in a permissive attitude towards sin. It's not like God is saying, well, yeah, you're evil, you've made your mistakes, but you know what, I'm cool with it. I'm your homeboy, we're, we're boys, I'll look the other way. That's not the contrast that the Apostle Paul is making. He's not saying, well, yeah, sure, you've inadvertently followed the prince and the power, the ruler of this world, and this, by living this existence apart from me, but you know what? I know your heart. I know deep down inside you're really a good boy, and I know you're trying your best. The contrast isn't rooted in a, but God doesn't really care. It's not rooted in a, but God has this laissez-faire attitude towards sin. The contrast with humanity's depravity 
is rooted in God's unfathomable love for rebels like you and me. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, the richness of God's mercy is rooted in his love. He even needs to repeat it. It's so great. Because of the great love with which he loved us. It's almost like I need to go overboard to explain that, that there's nothing lovable inside of you, but because of God's great mercy, because of God's great love, I've got some wonderful news for you. Because this God, who is rich in mercy, has chosen to display his mercy toward you, let me tell you about God's love. Because of the great love with which he loved us. The contrast is between our rebelliousness and God's love, and the contrast could not be more stark. Pastor Cassidy set this up for us perfectly last week with the black and white illustration of amazing grace. He put the, the black background behind the bright white letters of amazing grace. It's a very stark contrast, but God. And this week, Paul amplifies this understanding by not just saying that the contrast is black and white, but the contrast is in high-definition color. We, we tend to think of sin in very low-contrast terms. We're not that bad. If I just improve the way that I handle money just a little bit more, then I know God's going to love me just that much more. If I just treat my spouse just a little bit better, if I get my, my relationship with my spouse just under control just a little bit more, then I know God was going to be approving of me and I'm going to be walking more in line with what he desires for me. We think in these very, well, I'm just kind of a dark green and I need just a lighter shade of green in order to walk in, in, in God's love. But when we're talking in terms of salvation, when we're talking in terms of grace, when we're talking in terms of the way in which God has loved rebellious sinners like us, the contrast is completely different colors. <laughs> It's not you just need to improve a little bit. The contrast is you are dead and you need to be made alive. You are unlovable. There is nothing inside of you with which God should look at you and say, yeah, I love you because of something inside of you. There is nothing within us that God should look at us and say, yes, I want to save that person because they have something to offer me. The contrast is my love is so much greater. My love is so much more distinct. My love is so much different than these spiritual rebels that I'm in a complete and utterly different category altogether. But God because of the love with which he has loved us, because of the richness 
of his mercy. It is his great love with which he has loved us that permits him to remain loving even despite our wickedness and even through our wickedness. If God had not chosen to love us with a distinct and unfathomable love, the end result for all of humanity would solely be death upon death. But God... If you are a Christian here this morning, your life was stated by verse, was defined by verses one through three. That was who you were, but God, who has chosen to love you, who has chosen to throw open the floodgates of his mercy on your soul and in your life, but God, the contrast in your life could not be more stark from who you were before Christ to who you are now because of God's great love for you. Verse 5 continues, But God, because of the great love with which he has loved us, Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. If we are Christians, God's love for us, his choice to come into our lives, to reveal Christ to us, that love, that particular special love is not conditioned for us on the basis of our goodness. God's love, decision to love us, is not on the basis of something within us that has intrinsic worth and value to him. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he continues in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. This made us alive verb is the main verb for all of verses 1 through 7. It's the only uh, verb in all of verses 1 through 7 that defines this entire passage in verses 1 through 7. Here is the entire point of the section You were dead. You were spiritually lifeless. You were walking spiritual zombies, obeying your passions. But God, because of the love with which he loved his spiritually lifeless creatures, because of his love, God made us alive together with Christ. Christ went into the the literal tomb with his perfect life on behalf of spiritually lifeless people like you and me. He was raised from the dead to awaken new spiritual life in lifeless people like us. And because Christ now lives in his resurrection in heaven, we now can spiritually live in and through him. We have been made alive with Christ by grace. 
the great love with which God has loved us was the sending, sacrificing, and the ascending of Jesus Christ. We are made alive together with Christ. And this, all of this, being made alive is done by grace. God did this because of his love. God made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, he concludes in verse 5. Jesus Christ is the clearest, brightest, most beautiful expression of God's unfathomable love and unfathomable grace toward people like, me, like you and like me. When I was a teenager, starting when I was 16 years old, I had one of my close friends die every year. 16, 17, 18, 19. To such a point, people were like, Carl, we don't want to be friends with you. (laughs) I remember in those moments, very clearly, there is nothing that I can do to bring my friend back. The love that I had for each one of them was swiftly, clearly, and abruptly cut off. I could no longer continue to actively love that person in the same way that I did as they were alive. They were dead. One of the my youth group students from 10, between 10 and 15 years ago, uh, I don't know why, but probably just had a morbid curiosity as they were uh, walking through a graveyard at some point and they saw this. <laughs> Took a picture of it and sent it to me. It's, my, it's, my, I'm, it's spelled wrong and I wasn't born, and it's spelled with a K, the correct way. <laughs> and I wasn't born in 1906 and I didn't pass away in 1969 but they took a picture of it and they and they sent it to me and I've kind of kept it around just as a reminder for this is my life apart from Christ apart from God's gracious loving initiative I'm dead and I'm cut off to God no human being would be able to reach into the grave and resurrect their friend from the dead so that they might be able to continue to love them. That's the way death works. But God, but God, God, by his grace, by the loving initiative of sending Christ, he went into the grave, rose Jesus powerfully from the dead and dispensed his grace to all of his people so that his love would not end in death. Death cuts us off from loving one another. It cuts us off from communicating with one another. Spiritual death did not stop Jesus from going to the grave on your behalf so that God might love you forever and ever and ever and might unload the riches of his grace on you in kindness forever and ever and ever. 
God decided before you were ever born, God decided even through the emptiness of your depravity apart from him, he decided to reach into the graveyard of this existence and say to you individually, I still love you. Death will not separate you from my love. I am sending my son. He is going into the grave. I am raising him from the dead. And you are going to be with me forever. You can see why this is one of the most popular passages in all of Scripture. Pollux has already explained the, the glorious contrast, this glorious new life that death cannot even separate us from. Then in verses 6 through 9, he explains, and I've already teased it a little bit, the believer's glorious future, the secure position, just as Jesus Christ is seated in heaven and death no longer has a hold on him. Your position in him is secure. Watch what he, the language that he uses in verse six. Verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. These two verbs, raised and seated, are aorist, perfect, finite verbs. Can I get an amen? The Greek language, it does not have a time base like English does. When I say, I walked into the store, you think, I did it yesterday or I did it in the past. The Greek language does not work like that. It works on the basis of, an, of aspect. So, uh, when it's talking about raised and seated, it's not having anything necessarily to do with time. It is talking about a completed action, something that is finished, something that is done, so, when, when Paul says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, he is saying, this is done. It is finished. It is secure. As surely as Jesus Christ is seating, sitting on the throne in the heavenly places, just as sure and secure as that is, so also if you are in him, it is as sure and secure as he sitting in heaven. If you are in Christ, you are secure in him now. You are spiritually raised. You are spiritually seated with him in the heavenly places. Yes, you're still living and breathing in this existence, in this spiritual graveyard that we call earth, but your position in heaven is more secure than all of the gold in the most secure Fort Knox type of fortress in all of the world. And Paul is using this language to contrast the bondage that was present in verses 1 through 3. Previously, we were dead to God. We were alive to sin. We followed the prince and the power and the ruler of this age. But now, but God, because he has sent his son, because he has raised Christ from the dead, and we are raised with him, spiritually speaking, and seated with him right now in the heavenly places, this power, the spiritual bondage is broken. 
We can live free lives now. Sin no longer has complete and entire authority over us. Sin no longer has the last word. Satan is no longer pulling the strings for our lives and enticing and baiting us completely and having full dominion over us. Christ does. And his authority is as secure as it is possible. He's never going to get voted out of office. Not only does Christ reign with us, he, or in us, he also reigns with us. We are the active, living expressions of Christ's rule here in this spiritual graveyard we call earth. And God did this, as we see in verse 7, so that we might receive his immeasurable kindness toward us who believe forever and ever. I can imagine Andrea being kind to me because I have occasional moments when I'm a semi-decent husband. <laughs> So I can see because of my occasional moments of semi-decency toward her, I can see in response to that, she could be like, okay, I'm going to be kind to you also. I promise to love Andrea. I've promised to serve her for the rest of her life. So I'm not surprised that she would respond to me with kindness. It's a very mutual, reciprocal relationship. But that's not the way that Paul describes God's kindness towards us. Not only has he expressed his kindness towards a rebellion, rebellious humanity in sending, sacrificing, and raising Christ for us, but that was just the beginning of his kindness that he will unload upon his people that is, his, Paul's word, that is immeasurable. You, you can't put a number on it. You can't measure it in any way. It is immeasurable. What Paul is saying in, verses, in verse 7 is that there will never be a time in all of eternity when we will cease to receive the kindness of God. God will never say, well, I just used up all of my kindness on, the, on, uh, on Billy Graham. He was just so good. I needed to be so kind to him. Sorry, Carl. You just didn't make the cut. I'm done with my kindness. There will never be a time in all of eternity in which God will not unload the fullness of his kindness upon all of his children forever because of what has been done for us through Christ. Well, how then is this new life appropriated into our life? How do we take hold of it now? Now we get into the most, one of the most popular passages in all of Scripture, verses 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the summary statement of all of biblical salvation. God saves his people both now and forever by grace through faith. The summary way that God has always saved his people because of his love for spiritually dead zombies like us, 
appropriated into our lives through faith. The grace, it is grace that is at work in our lives that gives us the ability even to have faith. New Testament scholar P.T. O'Brien states this, God's magnificent rescue from death, wrath, and bondage is all of grace. It neither originates in nor is it affected by the readers. Instead, it is God's own gift. And because this salvation is entirely a work of grace, there's no grounds for boasting. There's only grounds for humble worship. No humans can boast in their own salvation as if this was somehow a result of something intrinsic within them, something that they did. This is similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 about justification, righteousness, how to be righteous before God. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, if we've all sinned, how can we be righteous in his presence? Well, and are justified freely by his grace as a gift to be received through faith. And if this is true, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. No one has the right before God to say, I got here on the basis of my own righteous deeds. First Corinthians he goes even farther uh, in, in some, to some of them saying, well, consider your calling. And calling in this passage means consider when God intervened in your life and called you to himself. Consider when you first came to faith in Jesus. Consider your calling, brothers. Remember what you were? Well, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He's so encouraging, right? <laughs> Remember who you used to be? You were pretty foolish. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because of you. It's not because you're so special. It's not because you got a gold star on your chart. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, holiness, or sanctification, and redemption so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is truly our posture before God if we are saved. Humble recipients of unfathomable grace that we do not deserve. The only posture of a heart that has received the unfathomable grace of God is to say, to close our lips to our own actions, to shut our mouths according to our own works, and open them only to boast in the Lord and say, this is what God has done. This is how God has saved me. This is the unfathomable kindness that God has shown me. 
And brothers and sisters, if you can sing that from the depths of your soul, you can be assured that one day we will be gathered before his throne singing with millions and millions of others who have been redeemed by the sheer love of God apart from anything that we have done, singing to our Savior who has gone into the grave on our behalf, loving us even in our entirely and completely unlovable state, knowing and boasting only in God's grace. Heavenly Father, I just pray here on my knees that we would be a people who boast only in you. That we would take the posture of a humble recipient of your love, your unfathomable, unshakable, never-ending, continual love of God. God, if we were able to write words that would clarify your love for people in all of its breadth and all of its height and all of its depth, God, we would, the, the, the world would run out of pages. The servers on all of the world's uh, system, uh, servers, uh, would completely fill up with da- data. We could not contain the amount of love and kindness that you have expressed towards us in Christ, and we will be recipients of that forever and ever. Help us, O oh God, to be a people who keep our mouths shut according to our own works toward you, believing as if we earned something that contributes to our salvation. And help us to have open mouths and open hearts, boasting and proclaiming of all that you have done in and through us because of the finished and accomplished work of Christ. We praise you, we thank you, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.